Now hear the word of the Lord from Nehemiah chapter 2, and it's going to be a long one, so hang in there. Um, It says, In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should, my, why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lives in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent me with officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite ser- servant hear- heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel." So I went to Jerusalem, and I was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me. And I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night to the valley gate, to the dragon spring, and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and I entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it. They jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Peace be with you. Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Dodds. I'm one of the pastors here. Good to be with you this morning. Uh, last week, we began our series in Nehemiah, and as uh, Britt just read, we're in Nehemiah chapter 2 this morning. The, the book of Nehemiah 
tells the story of God's people rebuilding the broken down walls of Jerusalem. Nehemiah is all about building a new Jerusalem, a new city of God, which is precisely what the church is called to do today. We, the church, by the orders of our King Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit, are building a new Jerusalem. And so we are turning to the book of Nehemiah in order to learn how we should go about doing that. When the church is in despair, what should Christians be doing? In the midst of a society that cares very little for the pursuit of holiness or the word of God, what should be our posture and our action as his people? Last week we were introduced to Nehemiah and we saw that he was, he was well acquainted with the scriptures. He knew the promises of God made through Moses and he was able to apply those promises to his own situation. Nehemiah is passionate about the city of God and that passion leads him to action. Now he's heartbroken to hear that Jerusalem was in ruins but before he takes action, we see he spends several months praying, fasting, and repenting before the Lord. And so last week, as, as Paul preached, we, we talked about the absolute necessity of Scripture, of prayer, and most particularly repentance. And we said that any attempt to rebuild and renew must, must be founded on these things. This must be the action, the foundational action of the church, to know and live the Scriptures, to pray, and to repent. Today we're going to be considering a few things from Nehemiah, but most centrally we will be considering his assessment of the walls of Jerusalem and what that means for us as we seek to build God's city as the church at Sojourn Heights. So let's read from our text again in verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. So when we left off with Nehemiah last week, it was the month, month of Kislev. Now we're in the month of Nisan, which is about four months later. So Nehemiah has been fasting, praying, and mourning the condition of Jerusalem for all of that time. Now, at first hearing, maybe perhaps we're wondering why Nehemiah has been waiting. But it's worth remembering his prayer from chapter one. He asks the Lord to hear his prayer, and he asks the Lord to grant him success and favor in the sight of this man, the king. So Nehemiah has been actively waiting on the Lord during this time. He's not being lazy, he's not biding his time, he is actively waiting and trusting the Lord. It's good for us right here to take heed of this. As we devote ourselves, as we sojourn, devote ourselves to the study and living of the scriptures, to prayer and repentance, as we build the church, we must add this, we must add this, a patient waiting and trusting of the Lord as we do those things. It's easy for us to think that, that progress requires resolute pride. We can think that we make progress by surging forward and seizing the opportunities and to heck with the consequences. But pride is actually regressive. Pride goes backwards. Humility and patience are the true characteristics of progress. 
We knock, we ask, and then we wait patiently, expecting for the Lord to answer. As we build, we must be patient. As we build, we must be humble. Now, presumably, Nehemiah has been serving faithfully in this office as the king's cupbearer these last four months. And as Paul said last week, this was truly a, a prized office that came with the perk of having the king's ear. Being the cupbearer was like being the king's prophetic advisor. In the book of Genesis, when Joseph becomes the chief cupbearer, he speaks of his silver cup as that which he uses when he gives prophetic advice to Pharaoh. And so here, Nehemiah is giving the king his cup, but more particularly, he's giving the king his prophetic counsel. Now, I'm going to pick up the reading again here, but we're going to read a larger portion, so I hope you just stay with me. I haven't done this before this way, but as I read, I'm going to kind of interject and put in some responses and some questions and some ob just some observances. And I want you to note just the rhythm and progression of this conversation between Nehemiah and Artaxerxes. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad seeing you were not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. So think about this. Nehemiah has been waiting for this moment, maybe waiting for a moment. Is this, is this a door opening? But he's fearful at first. Then I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? It's a really direct and personal answer. He doesn't even call it Jerusalem. He calls it the city, the place of my father's graves. It's very personal. Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? Is this an open door right now? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, side note, and I don't have time to tell you why this is, but the queen sitting next to him is Esther. How long will you be gone, and when will you return? It's a fair question. He's the cupbearer. He holds an office. I need to know how long you're going to be gone. So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. So now we see that Nehemiah has not only been waiting and praying and fasting, he's also been planning. He knows the timeline to give to the king. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me, to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. He knows exactly what he needs. He's been planning this. And the king granted to me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. 
It's this wonderful back and forth. I love the way this is written. I said to the king, and the king said to me. I said to the king, the king said to me. Now the burden that Nehemiah has been bearing secretly for months now has to be disclosed to the man who can actually do something about it. We can't be sure whether or not Nehemiah is just letting his guard down at this point or whether he's unsuccessful in disguising his troubled heart. But whatever the case, it's the king who recognizes something is wrong with Nehemiah and Nehemiah is initially afraid. It's possible that he might have been worried that he was committing a serious breach of etiquette. As a cupbearer, he's supposed to be occupied and concerned with the king's affairs. It's not supposed to be the other way around. To put a king in a position of being concerned about his affairs could be regarded as a failure of his duties. You're the cupbearer. You got to keep it together. I'm the king. I get to fall apart. But Nehemiah is expected to be a loyal servant of Persia. And so for him to disclose his concern for this distant ancestral city of a long since conquered nation might not be considered proper, especially, if you remember, because Artaxerxes was the one who had halted the rebuilding of the wall with Ezra 13 years before. So such a request could be seen as a blatant opposition to the king's decree. But the entire fate of Jerusalem and the returning exiles there are probably, it's probably riding on Nehemiah's address to the king, and so unsurprisingly, he is shaken. But he responds, he responds deferentially. He expresses the reason for his sadness clearly and directly. He's personal, he's vulnerable, but he's respectful. He honors the king and he addresses him with proper etiquette. May the king live forever. Lord, if it pleased the king. And Artaxerxes responds favorably. And as we see, the conversation grows. As it goes on, so, so does Nehemiah's boldness. He begins fearfully, but he ends with confident, bold requests. He really does ask for the moon. Because asking for these things is knowingly requesting a change to imperial policy. Hey, remember that thing that you decreed 13 years ago? Can you just say that that's over and that we can start again? <laughs> yeah. And in his prayer and in his credit to God for the success of his request, Nehemiah shows and reminds us all that it's God who has been there this whole time. He's working through all of these ordinary regular relationships and months and conversations. Yeah. See, he's the one that Nehemiah is looking to trust and hear and honor. And so as we build God's house, we need to do the same. We need to know that it's God who's at work through all of our regular conversations and lives and work. Now, Nehemiah may not seem like the Bible heroes of ages past. He, he doesn't rage against kings or call down holy fire on an altar. His job in Susa is to refill the king's wine glass. And it, and it certainly was a place of great honor and influence. But what he did in that position, what he does right here is subject himself for the Lord's sake to a human institution 
to a human king. He feared God, and he was honoring the emperor. See, Nehemiah returns to Judea to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. And because of his station, he arrives with letters from the king, giving him authority and resources to carry out the work as he saw fit. And before he got started building, Nehemiah made sure that he had all of his passports and permits in order. And there's something, too, we can catch here. As we build God's church, we should see those in government. We should see those in any place of authority or leadership as tools for the kingdom. And remember, and remember Solomon's words in Proverbs 21, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Like Nehemiah, we can, in good conscience, be faithful servants of our earthly leaders because we serve a higher king who rules over every nation under heaven and his kingdom will never fade or fail or crumble. We can make vulnerable, honest, honorable requests and watch God work through ordinary people with ordinary means for extraordinary ends. So, Nehemiah has all of his papers in order, and he makes his way by armored escort to the governors of the provinces and presents the king's letters. So he's got all that he needs to start the work, but it's here that he faces his first bit of opposition in Sanballat and Tobiah. They're local officials, they read the letters, and they're immediately displeased that anyone is looking out for the welfare of God's people. And this won't be the last time that we see them. There'll be many moments to come that we'll see them. But let's keep reading. So I went to Jerusalem, and I was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me. And I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. So basically, Nehemiah covers almost kind of like the western part, the southern part, and the, the lower eastern part of the walls. And then he doubles back to the valley gate. Now, it's conceivable that if Nehemiah had received no opposition, that he would have made his plans for Jerusalem known right away. But in recognizing the opposition and sensing the volatile and uncertain nature of his situation, he opts for caution and secrecy. And make no mistake, Sanballat, Tobiah, and others will be back with stronger opposition, not only in this chapter, but in chapters to come. But Nehemiah, in response to this, is, is he's holding his cards very close to his chest, as close as possible. He tells no one of his intentions. He tells no one of his hopes for the restoration of God's city. And under cover of night, with just a few other men, he takes 
on an inspection of the walls and gates of Jerusalem to find where the disrepair and destruction have taken place. And this is where I'd like for us to camp out just for a bit um, before we close. The central parts, the central part of verses 9 through 20 are Nehemiah's inspection. That's the central part of, of those verses. Before any building takes place, Nehemiah assesses the state of things. He looks, before he just gets to work on building, he has to assess. And as we endeavor to build God's church, we, we do need to do the same. To, <laughs> excuse me, to very loosely quote a theologian and pastor, <clears throat> a man who is charged to rebuild walls must be a student of two things. He must be a student of the tools he is using, and he must be a student of the wall that he intends to repair. He must know the gospel and the scripture that houses it, and he must also know the state of the current wall, whether those walls are healthy or diseased. He needs to know where to replace brick and mortar, and this means that in order to have a true impact, a local church must understand their state. It's easy to think of the walls of Jerusalem as just the boundaries of the city. But it's not just that. The walls are the distinctiveness of the city. In its walls, Jerusalem is set apart as a holy city for a particular purpose, a city on a hill, a light to the nations. The church is exactly the same. The walls are about the distinctiveness and holiness of God's people. As Proverbs 25, 28 says, a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. When our holiness as a church crumbles, our distinctiveness crumbles, our community crumbles. And so we should take a look at ourselves. We should inspect our own walls here at Sojourn and ask, where are the walls crumbling and in disrepair here at Sojourn Heights? Recently, a, a few of our covenant members, um, Aaron Repke and Tucker Cowie, put together an assessment for our parish leaders to really see what they were experiencing and where they needed support and guidance. And this, this assessment was incredibly helpful in showing us where we needed to rebuild. But we also need to go, we also need to keep going. We need to keep assessing. When we're thinking about the holiness of Sojourn Heights, the holiness of our church, maybe there's some good questions that we can ask to just get us thinking about assessing ourselves, our parishes, our church, in the ways of distinctiveness and holiness as we are a people of his own possession sent to proclaim his excellencies. So here are a few questions maybe we can just consider in our own assessment. 
broadly, in what ways have we become more like the world? Or in what ways are we, do we see we are being tempted to become more like the world? Have, our, have your individual political affiliations become more important in distinguishing you than God's word and God's commands? Have you found yourself regularly overindulging in food, alcohol, spending, saving, acquiring? Are we all seriously pursuing sexual purity or just dabbing in harmless sin? Are we overspending collectively and individually in such a way that it makes it harder for us to support the orphans, the widows, and the poor in our city? Are we sharing the gospel with our coworkers and neighbors, or are we finding ways to just avoid that conversation? Are we here as fellow saints? Are we submitting our lives to one another in a genuine pursuit of unity and like-mindedness, or are we just trying to have our own independent experience with God? What do our dating lives look like? Do we date like anyone would, or is our pursuit in dating distinctly Christian? Are our Christian marriages seemingly the same as our non-Christian neighbors? And in what ways? Are we at odds with one another even within our own walls? <laughs> Do we seek to build a free city and yet enslave each other with envy and jealousy, anger and bitterness? Do you know of someone or anyone whom you've sinned against or been sinned against and yet have, have yet to talk to them about it? I'm sure there are more wall assessment questions. I'm sure there are. Probably better, probably better ones too. But I really do, I, I, I want to encourage all of us in our parishes with our roommates, with our spouses, with our friends, to consider these questions and see what assessment we come up with. Where is our distinctiveness, our holiness as the people of God? Where is it in disrepair? Where is it due for a rebuild or some kind of attention? Where is it in need of complete repair? We, we've, been through, we've been through two of the hardest years we've ever seen as a church. Why wouldn't our walls be in need of attention and rebuilding? We really don't need to be afraid of what we find. We don't need to be afraid of what we'll find. And here's why. Verse 11. So I went to Jerusalem and, there were, and was there three days. Then I arose in the night. Verse 16. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, 
You see the trouble we're in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. This is what I find really interesting. Nehemiah comes to Jerusalem and after three days, he rises. He reveals his secret plans to his people and then he raises them up to complete the building project the father sent him to do. That's Nehemiah. But Jesus is doing the very same thing with us we have been raised with him in order to join him in building the new Jerusalem, the new city of God among the cities of man. He is is our great cupbearer, and he continually offers us his counsel, his help, his promises, and he doesn't just raise us once. He raises us up repeatedly lifting our heads, filling our hearts with fresh courage, fresh faith to continue the work to which he's commissioned us to build God's house and to disciple the nations. So what have we learned from Nehemiah chapter two about how we are to build the city of God? A few things. First, we've learned that as we devote ourselves to scripture, prayer, and repentance, we must humbly and patiently wait on the Lord as we faithfully build his church. He will answer. He will respond. He will provide all that we need. Secondly, we've learned that we should see those in government, those in any kind of authority, as instruments for the kingdom. Just like Nehemiah, we can in good conscience be faithful servants of our earthly leaders because we serve a higher king who rules over every nation under heaven and his kingdom will not fail. Thirdly, we've learned that as we build, we will face opposition from those who don't want God or his people to flourish. Sometimes it will be mild displeasure and sometimes it will be stronger. And finally, we have learned that before we build, we must boldly, we must boldly assess the state of things, the state of our holiness, because our holiness as a people matters greatly as we seek to grow God's kingdom in the world. We are in the world, not of the world. We have the assurance of Christ that he will be with us through every season and in every endeavor to build his church, to build his body here at Sojourn Heights. When it's hard, he will encourage us. When it's fruitful, he'll rejoice with us. When it's impossible, he'll strengthen us. As Nehemiah says, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we, his servants, will arise and build. Let's pray. Almighty God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the book of Nehemiah. 
Lord, thank you for calling us to be a holy nation, a royal priesthood. Lord, people who once had not been shown mercy, but now have been shown mercy. And that we might, or by your mercy, by the work of the Holy Spirit, be a people who live distinct, holy lives. And that Sojourn Heights, as a bride, would be a distinct and holy bride. Lord, will you help us? Will you help us to be patient and to wait for you? Will you help us to endure onslaught, pushback? Or will you help us to endure opposition that will come? Or give us strength, Lord, to trust you when it seems like, is, is God able to work in the regular and the mundane? And Lord, would you help us as we assess ourselves, as we assess our own holiness, as we look at our church and say, where are the, where are the walls in disrepair? May we be unashamed to say where they are in disrepair because we know that wherever we find the disrepair, your grace has already met that place. We need you. We long to build your kingdom. We long to have a heart like Nehemiah, who when he sees the holiness of your city broken down, it breaks his heart. Or would you, in, in, a, in a world where it seems like so much can break our hearts, would you, would you break our hearts for the right things? Please, for your glory, for your name, for your kingdom, for your bride. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.